All right, if you want to begin, if you want to take your Bible real quickly, and let's go over to 2 Timothy chapter 3. And uh, one of the standard passages that I always use uh, when I'm thinking about what's going on in our culture in the last times has to be for our 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 1 here, where the Apostle Paul says, but know this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. Now, you can actually translate that word difficult, and I'm reading from the Legacy Standard Bible here. You can translate that particular word, um, terrible times, um, uh, very hard time, harsh times, difficult times will come. And then he gives us a whole description as to what will constitute those difficult times. And um, if you've done any kind of formal or hermeneutical study, you know this, that the New Testament authors, authors quite frequently, if they wanted to list certain things and give you a whole list of what was going on, they always prioritize the broadest characteristic at the top of that particular list. That's exactly what happens here, as well as in 1 Timothy 3, when it talks about the characteristics of those who are overseers. The broadest topic that, in a sense, characterizes everything else on that particular list. And in verse 2, it says, for men will be lovers of self. That's the first thing that's on the list. As if this is going to be the primary characteristic that will make the last days so terrible, so difficult, so hard. Men will love self. They'll be consumed with self. The whole self-esteem movement that has been going on in our culture going back to the 1950s, even after post-World War II, uh, late 1940s, and so on, uh, the fruit of what you see, uh, well, what you see going on in our culture today is really the fruit of what occurred early in the days, especially in terms of psychotherapy and, um, and, the, and the whole thinking that went behind contemporary psychology. So men will be lovers of self. We were told that uh, when I was going through college, we, I was told that that was a virtue. And I'm sure that you've heard that too. And you've even heard it from people on, on the radio, uh, prominent preachers around the country that eschew is, is or advance the idea that we need to love ourselves more. That's a, such a critical thing, um, they would say. But in reality, nowhere in the Bible, there's not a single reference in the entire scripture that says we need to love ourselves more. In fact, the Bible is replete with warnings that we need to love ourselves less, not more, all right? And in fact, he says, this is not a virtue, it is a vice. And this is the very thing that will make the last days so hard. People will be consumed with themselves. If you do word studies, biblical word studies at all, and you take a look at the Old Testament term for insanity, the Old Testament term for insanity goes back to the major idea of being turned in upon oneself or to be self-consumed. I hear a lot of people in our culture, a lot of Christians saying in our culture today, man, when you look at what's going on in the news, you look at what's being advanced in terms of social media and so on, People are insane. Well, that's a good description. That's exactly what it is. 
People are insane. They're very turned in upon themselves. They are consumed. And what is going to be the result of that? Well, the result of that is going to be because they are self-lovers. Look at verse 2 again. They will love money. All the major uh, big corporations that seem to be really running the world, not national governments, but big corporations. They'll be boastful because they love self. They'll be arrogant because they love self. They'll be blasphemers because they love self. They'll blaspheme God. They'll blaspheme God's people. They'll be disobedient to parents because they love self. Ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, without gentleness, without love for good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, but having denied its power. Then he says this, keep away from such men as these. In other words, avoid them at all costs. Don't listen to them. Don't put yourself underneath their teaching. Don't do that because it'll warp your view of life and it'll warp your view of other people and it'll especially destroy your view of God. Men will be lovers of self. They'll be consumed with self. And um, if you have a moment, let's go over just for a moment to Matthew chapter 22. And you can see this here where Jesus is confronted in verse 34 with the Pharisees. And one of them in verse 35 says, Matthew twenty-two thirty-five. and one of them, a scholar of the law, that means uh, he prided himself in the fact that he was, um, he knew his Old Testament, he knew his Torah. Our teacher of the law asked him a question, testing him, saying, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, I've heard many, many people preach that, well, here what Jesus is setting up, I mean, In verse 39, he's talking about the fact you need to love yourself. That's what you need to do Um, because Jesus talks about this here. And in fact, they would say, if you cannot, first you've got to learn to love yourself, then you can learn to love others, and then you can learn to love God in that order. But first you need to love God yourself first. Love yourself first, then you can love others, then you can love God. And what in essence they do When they say, love your neighbor as yourself, they turn that into a third command, all right? They turn it into a third command. So I'm supposed to love God, I'm supposed to love others, but I'm also supposed to love myself. That's what I'm supposed to do. Well, Jesus makes it very clear there are not three commands here. There are two. Look at verse 40. Verse 40 says, on these two commands hang the whole law and the prophets. On these two commands. On those two pegs, everything else goes back to. What is that? How much you love God and how much you love other people. Everything in life goes back to those two things. How much you love God and how much you love other people. There's nothing that you ever do or experience in life that doesn't go back to those two, one of those two things. How much you love God and how much you love other people. 
But so what does he mean when he says as yourself? What he's saying is, he's not producing a third command. What he's saying is, you need to love God and you need to love other people as much as you already love yourself. Whoa! At this particular point, this is mind-blowing to the average Christian today who has been baptized in the idea that I need to love myself more and this is the reason for all my problems. And when I get that way, then I'm natural. The natural result of that is, I'm going to diminish or find some way to excuse what would normally be sin or even guilt in my life because that's the most loving thing that I could do for myself. And so now everybody in our culture now becomes a victim. Everybody's a victim. Nobody's a perpetrator. I'm a victim of what all of you have done to me. All right? It's your fault. It's not my fault. You're the ones who have caused me to be the way that I am. My parents didn't raise me the right way. My mother did not breastfeed me properly. That's the reason why I am the way that I am. My father didn't treat me right. This all works together. When you take a look at Ezekiel 18, you begin to realize that Jesus teaches, or God teaches, and it's Lord Jesus too, but teaches that each generation is responsible for the choices that they make, period. Each generation is responsible for the choices that they make. I'm not going to blame uh, the children for their father's sins, and I'm not going to blame the fathers for the children's sins. I'm not going to do that. God makes it very clear. Study Ezekiel 18. So each man is responsible. So when Jesus is saying on these two commands, on these two pegs, the entire law hangs how much you love God and how much you love other people, then everything in life goes back to those two things. When now we have a whole culture that's diverted in their thinking way away from this. To the point where nobody now is responsible for anything. They're not responsible for anything. And I want to give you some illustrations of this, which I think should help you to understand what we're talking about here and how this has so become such a critical part of our culture today. Because there has been this contemporary war on guilt um, and, um, and it's been replete everywhere. You can't go to almost to any public educational institution that has any kind of a solid view on the issue of guilt without getting inundated with the fact that guilt is a person's enemy. Guilt is a person's enemy. And there are plenty of examples of this from in society. And what I want to do is kind of use a little bit of a blend. I'm going to use our own pastors, uh, the book that he published almost 30 years ago called The Vanishing Conscience. He has some excellent illustrations there of this. And then I'm going to throw in some more contemporary illustrations as well and some of my own illustrations to help you um, get an idea of exactly what we're talking about. So in order to see this, I want you to see that um, 
from a biblical perspective, our culture is now really turned itself on the issue of sin and guilt. Um, Dr. Carl Minninger, uh, very popular back in the 1970s, 1980s, probably the most prominent secular psychologist that America's ever produced, authored a number of books. But among one of the books in which Carl Minninger produced was a book entitled, Whatever Became of Sin. (laughs) Can you imagine that? A secular psychologist printing a book on whatever became of sin. And out of that particular book, he makes this statement, quoting him, in all the laments and reproaches made by our seers and prophets, one misses any mention of sin, a word which used to be a veritable watchword of prophets. It was a word once in everybody's mind, but now rarely if ever heard. Does that mean that no sin is involved in our troubles? Sin with an I in the middle? Is no one any longer guilty of anything? Guilty perhaps of a sin that could be repented and repaired or atoned for? Is it only that someone may be stupid or sick or criminal or asleep? Wrong things are being done, we know. Tears are being sown in the wheat field at night. But is no one responsible, no one answerable for these acts? Anxiety and depression, we all acknowledge, and even vague guilt feelings. But has no one committed any sins? Where indeed did sin go? What became of it? Great question. Ever since he authored those words, it's almost as if no one talks about this anymore. Where did sin go? Whatever became of sin? So Minninger is right. It's almost as if it is a word that is absent in our society today. And one of the main reasons is because guilt is an enemy. Guilt is an enemy. Let's take an example from Catherine Power. Catherine Power was a fugitive for more than 33 years. Back in 1970, during the heyday of student radicalism, she participated in a Boston bank robbery in which a city policeman, the father of nine children, was shot in the back and killed. Pursued by federal authorities for a murder, Ms. Power went into hiding. For 14 years, she was one of the FBI's most, 10 most wanted fugitives. Finally, in late 1993, she surrendered to, to authorities. And in a statement that she read to the press, Catherine Power characterized her actions in a bank robbery as naive and unthinking. Imagine that. What motivated her to surrender? Quoting her, I know that I must answer this accusation from the past in order to live with full authenticity in the present. Hmm. Power's husband explained further, quoting him, she did not return out of guilt. She wanted her life back. She wanted to be whole. Sound familiar? We hear this all the time. In a very perceptive piece written by the late Charles Krautheimer, he says this, her surrender for the sake of full authenticity was a form of therapy. Indeed, the final therapeutic step towards regaining her sense of self. 
Alan Bloom once described a man who had just gotten out of prison where he had undergone therapy. He said that he had found his identity and learned to like himself. Writes Bloom, a generation ago, he would have found God and learned to despise himself as a sinner. In an age where the word sin has become quaint, reserved for such offenses such as hygiene and smoking and drinking, which alone merit sin taxes, surrendering to authorities for armed bank robbery and manslaughter is not an act of repentance, but of personal growth. Explains Jane Alpert, another 60s radical, who who served time for her part in a series of bombings that injured 21 people, Ultimately, I spent many years in therapy, Jean Alpert said, learning to understand, to tolerate, and forgive both others and myself, end of quote. That's our culture. I hear Christians saying that all the time. I just need to learn to forgive myself, even though there's not a, not a hint in the Bible anywhere that we need to forgive ourselves of anything. God needs to forgive us. We don't need to forgive ourselves. It's not even a biblical concept. Learning to forgive for myself, Krauthammer says, very important nowadays for revolutionaries with a criminal bent, end of quote. Oh, yeah. So you, you understand it's not uncommon these days to hear people learning to forgive themselves, but even the terminology that they use is misleading um, forgiveness presumes an acknowledgement of guilt, right? I mean, I'm wrong. I have to forgive myself. That, that presumes an acknowledgement of guilt. And most people today who really talk about forgiving themselves explicitly repudiate the modern notion of personal guilt. Catherine Powers is a typical example of this. She only wanted to feel better about herself. She wanted to answer an accusation from the past. Why? To be whole. To be whole. So it's pretty obvious that any time today that a person acknowledges guilt... It's considered incompatible with the popular notion of wholeness and the need to protect the fantasy of a good self. And that is a fantasy, the fantasy of a good self. So there is no doubt about the fact that our culture today has declared war on guilt. The very concept is considered medieval, obsolete, unproductive, people who trouble themselves with feelings of personal guilt are usually referred to therapists whose job it is to boost their self-image. That's the therapist's job. Their job is to boost their self-image. No one, after all, is supposed to feel guilty. Guilt's not conducive to dignity and self-esteem. Society obviously advocates and encourages sin, right? But it's not going to tolerate the guilt that it produces. So we've got to do something about the guilt. 
Go out and sin all you want, but we've got to find some way to deal with the guilt. If you come to my office, you can find a whole bunch of books. But one of those books is a book written several years ago by Dr. Wayne Dyer. I remember when it was first written, very popular book. I bought it. It was paperback form that I got. And uh, because uh, it was a mega bestseller. It was entitled, Your Erroneous Zones. Your Erroneous Zones. And listen, he names in this guilt, or in this um, book, he names guilt as the most useless of all erroneous zone behaviors, end of quote. According to him, guilt is nothing but a neurosis. Guilt zones, he wrote, must be exterminated, sprayed clean, and sterilized forever. Those are his words. Now, how do we spray clean and sterilize our guilt zones? By renouncing the sinful behavior that makes us feel guilty? By repenting, asking for forgiveness? No, 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 you don't do that. You don't do that. According to Dyer, in fact, according to him, his remedy for guilt is about as far away from the biblical concept of repentance and acknowledging personal sin and guilt as you can get. His advice to his readers is this, quoting him, do something you know is bound to result in feelings of guilt Take a week to be alone. If you've always wanted to do so, despite the guilt-engendering protestations of other members of your family, these kinds of behavior will help you to tackle that omnipresent guilt, end of quote. In other words, he's basically saying, defy your guilt. And if necessary, spurn your own spouse and your own children, attack the sense of disapproval head-on, do something that is sure to make you feel guilty, then refuse to heed the cries of your conscience. So the duties of family responsibility or even the appeal of your own loved ones, why? Why? Because you owe it to yourself. So it's obvious that in the culture and society in which we live and work and function, Guilt is rarely treated seriously anymore. It's usually portrayed as an annoyance, a nuisance, one of life's little teeny aggravations. All you have to do is go online and do a search for articles on guilt. And if you do that and you go online and search for some of those articles, you'll come up with titles like this, How to Stop Being So Tough on Yourself. How about that? Guilt can drive you crazy. Maybe it's meant to. Guilt mongering. Hmm. Getting rid of the guilts. Stop pleading guilty. Guilt, colon, letting go. Don't feed the guilt monster. And on and on and on and on. You get the idea, right? So, 
One advice column gal wrote, it's not your fault. Big title in her article. It's not your fault. Stop blaming yourself. Your compulsive behavior is not your fault. Refuse to accept blame. And above all, do not blame yourself for what you cannot control. Keeping guilt on yourself only adds to your stress, low self-esteem, worry, depression, feelings of inadequacy, and dependency on others. Let go of your guilt feelings. Hmm. Ann Landers. Anybody remember Ann Landers? Remember Ann Landers? Vice column in a newspaper. Now, some of you that are under the age of 30 probably don't know what a newspaper is. (laughs) All right. But it used to be a paper thing that was produced and delivered to houses that had news on it. Ann Landers used to write in newspapers. Um that we live in a no-fault society. Ann Landers writes this, one of the most painful, self-mutilating, time and energy-consuming exercises in the human experience is guilt. It can ruin your day or your week or your life. If you let it, it turns up like a bad, bad penny when you do something dishonest, hurtful, tacky, selfish, or rotten, never mind that it was the result of ignorance stupidity, laziness, thoughtlessness, weak flesh or clay feet, you did wrong and the guilt is killing you. Too bad, she says. But be assured, the agony you feel is normal. Remember, guilt is a pollutant and we don't need any more of it in the world. End of quote. So, you shouldn't let yourself feel bad when you say something or do something dishonest. Hurtful, tacky, selfish, or rotten? You shouldn't. Think of yourself as good. Maybe ignorant, stupid, lazy, thoughtless, or weak, but still good. And you know what? Your sinful human nature loves that. Loves that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, I'm still a pretty good person. Really, deep down inside, I'm okay. Don't pollute your mind with the debilitating thoughts that you might actually be guilty. Now, why do I start there and why is this so important, especially in understanding what's happening here? Because I want you to understand that what this has done, it has radically changed both our thinking as well as our vocabulary. It's radically changed that. So much so that words like sin and repentance and contrition and atonement and restitution and redemption is no longer a part of our vocabulary anymore. Maybe we'll talk about it when we're at church, but out there functioning in society at large, we don't talk about that at all. Why? Because it's not conducive to wholeness. It's not conducive to loving oneself. It's not conducive to a flattering self-image. That's the reason why we don't like those terms anymore. And we rarely think in those terms. No one is supposed to feel guilty. 
And if nobody's supposed to feel guilty, then how is it that anybody could ever be a sinner? How is it? Modern culture has a simple answer to that because everybody is a victim. Everybody's a victim. And you can see this in contemporary psychotherapy today. It is everywhere. It's replete everywhere. And it's affected the broader culture and society at large. It's affected Christians in terms of their thinking. Everybody is a victim. No one is responsible. Some of the new vestiges of trauma-informed therapy really pushes this particular, particular view that everybody is a victim. And in fact, victimization has been transferred way off into now being traumatized. I have been traumatized. You see, this is a very popular word now. I have suffered trauma. It used to be, almost about 30 years ago, the word trauma was reserved for major major catastrophic events and war zone terminology. You rarely use that word outside of that. If you're a soldier and you see your friends and your buddies blown up in front of you, and then you're traumatized by seeing that. That's trauma. But now that terminology has been imported in modern psychotherapy today, where anytime you experience something unpleasant or difficult, then they're attempting to say now that this then changes certain chemicals in your brain. There is minor level chemical damage because of that particular trauma. And now I'm the only one who knows how deeply I have been hurt and traumatized by this. It's been imported into this. When in fact, the science behind it is almost zero. Now, we can see things with major traumatic events and losses. We can see that through brain scans. But through personal difficulties, hurts, uh, to be hurt is not the same thing as being traumatized. To, have, to suffer long-term difficult relationship is not the same thing as being traumatized. Now, you can be traumatized in a car accident. That's true. You can be traumatized if somebody brutally hurts you. That's true. But now it's used by everybody. It has to do. So in this sense, victims are are not responsible for what they do. They are casualties of what other people and circumstances that have happened to them. So every human failing has to be described in terms of how the perpetrator has been somehow victimized. We're supposed to be, in response to that, sensitive and compassionate enough to see the very behaviors that we used to label sin as actually evidence of victimization. It's evidence of that. It has gained so much influence and continues to gain influence in our society. There is practically no such thing as sin anymore. It doesn't exist. Anyone can escape responsibility for his or her wrongdoing simply by claiming the status of being a victim. It has radically changed 
the way our society looks at behavior. This is key. So what should I understand about what's going on here? How should I look at this from a biblical perspective? Um, That becomes the key thing. So in this particular case, let's ask the question, what are the explanations for the, the effects of guilt in our society today? And build, hopefully, a good understanding of what is involved there. The effects of guilt. Um, And you can see, let me highlight just a few of these, and this is not an exhaustive list. Um, No one can deny that depression, conflict, hatred, greed, hedonism, and other problems are rampant in our society, but those problems are explained away by the following. They're explained away, first and foremost, by the environment. I'm not responsible for the way I am. It's the environment that I grew up in. B.F. Skinner would be proud of all of us Christians when we blame our environment. It's the environment that caused me to be the way that I am. Really, with a consistent study theologically of what Scripture says, the environment never determines you. The environment can influence you, but not determine you. You are not determined by your environment. But we believe in our culture today that our environment does this. It determines us. And so you get Skinnerian behaviorism. Whatever environment that particular person was brought up in, that's the reason why they're having the problems that they're having. And you know what? Everybody, no matter who they are, no matter how favorable the environment may be, can find something in their environment to blame for all of their difficulties, hardships, setbacks, griefs. Anybody can do that. Just have to think long enough. The environment, that's part of the explanation for the effects of guilt. The second has to do with sickness. It's sickness that causes me to be the way that I am. There's an illness that I have, and maybe it's a mental illness. It's a mental illness. Now, I want you to understand this correctly. There is no such thing as mental illness. There never has been. You know why? Because it's impossible for the mind to get ill. It's impossible. The brain can get ill but the mind cannot get ill. The mind is an intangible thing. As far as I can determine in all the reading and study that we've done, the term, whoever coined the term or the person who actually coined the term of mental illness because he wanted to bring medicine together with psychotherapy was Sigmund Freud. Freud coined the term mental illness and it's widely used in our culture today. Now, if you wanna talk about brain illnesses, okay, I'm good with that, that's no problem. But there is no such thing as mental illness. It's an oxymoron, right? Like jumbo shrimp. (laughs) Military intelligence, all right? (laughs) It is an oxymoron. It's only something that it's, it's two ideas that don't go together. But people think that I, I am, um, I am ill 
with the ailment of the guilt. That's why I have this problem. And guilt is my problem. It is my sickness. So they blame it on sickness. Or they'll blame it on heredity. All right? You know, I just have been born into a family with the type of genes that make me feel guilty all the time, even though there is zero, zero evidence of that in hard science. None. There is no hard evidence of that. Heredity does not cause guilt. It doesn't exist. Or... There is this thing that people talk about in terms of false guilt. False guilt. Again, that is an oxymoron, right? And you'll see it when we begin to define it from a biblical perspective. There's no such thing as a false fact, all right? Because guilt is not a feeling. Guilt is not a feeling, not from a biblical perspective, So people will talk about false guilt. And again, you go back to Freud and his id and ego and superego and the fact that superego restricts the id. And as a result of that, all guilt is false guilt, according to Freud. So the therapist's responsibility is to build the willpower of the ego, to push back on the superego in order to free the id and to give the instinctual drives more freedom to do whatever it is they want to do. And it usually is a shameful display of sin and guilt. Or you hear this a lot in our culture today, shaming, shaming. You're just trying to shame me. If you accuse me of any kind of sin, that's shameful. Well, I would agree on one level. Sin is shameful. But you think it's an improper shaming upon you. And if you have committed a sin, you ought to feel shameful, first and foremost, before God. Because God has the only remedy for that that comes through repentance with atonement and full reconciliation God has the only remedy. All of those are explanations for the effects of guilt. So what are the efforts? What do people do in order to deal with the guilt? What do they do? Well, these are some of the efforts to eliminate the effects of guilt. And let me tell you, our society is becoming more and more sophisticated in trying to do this. Eliminating eliminating the effects of guilt. How do they do that? With more sin. More sin. You just keep doing the thing that makes you feel guilty until you don't feel guilty any longer. It's kind of like taking allergy shots. I don't have hardly any allergies except for hay fever. Hay fever is a terrible thing. And I remember out here in California, it doesn't bother me. But when I pastored back in Ohio many years... And they would start hay in the fields. Oh, my goodness. I'd start sneezing. So I'd have to go to the doctor and get allergy shots. What do they do? They inject you you with a little bit of elements of that hay fever in order to build 
up some kind of antibody and resistance to it so you don't have hay fever any longer. You just take those shots. Well, it's the same idea here. You just keep piling sin upon sin upon sin until you don't feel guilty anymore and everything's great. I'll tell a story about my one of my relatives, sister-in-law, who was a registered nurse in a Christian hospital in the South. This happened several years ago where uh, a young girl of about 18 years of age, 17, 18 years of age, came to the hospital with her parents, and she had gone to a Christian camp. And while she was at this particular camp, she ran into a young man, and they kind of fell in lust together, were able to slip away from everybody else, be intimate with one another. And through that one experience, she got pregnant. And her parents were Christians. They were horrified when they found out, and they took her to the hospital. And obviously, the answer to this was not an abortion. But the OBGYN checked her out and said, you're healthy, baby's healthy, nothing's wrong here uh, from that perspective. But the OBGYN could tell that she was experiencing all kinds of guilt from what had happened. And so he wrote out a prescription for her to see the staff psychologist there at the hospital. And my sister-in-law was signed to be the nurse to go with her. Her parents couldn't go to those sessions. So she went to the sessions with this young lady. And the second session they had, and this guy was a Christian psychotherapist who had been trained in Skinnerian behaviorism. He finally got to a point where he looked at her and he says, you know what your problem is? Your problem is guilt. And then he said to her, this is what you need to do. You need to go out and have as many relationships as you can until you don't feel guilty anymore. And my sister-in-law about fell out of the chair. Here's a guy who claimed to be a Christian who was telling this young lady to go out and have as many relationships as she can until she doesn't feel guilty anymore. Now, will that work? Sure it will. The Bible says it'll work. It'll work from the standpoint and it'll sear your conscience. You just keep redoing sin over and over again, and now you have a seared conscience and you don't feel bad about it any longer. But is she still guilty? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Just as the young man is guilty. All right? Still guilty. Still responsible. But our whole society is dedicated to this. You just go out and keep practicing the same things over and over again. And I think you understand that in your own personal life. You have something, some kind of particular sin You know it's sin, it's wrong, but it gives you so much pleasure, you do it anyhow until you don't feel guilty about it any longer. Wow. More sin. That's the way society deals with it, chemicals. Here's another way. A lot of people that are really on antidepressants, anti-anxiety medications, I have found out in 40 years of counseling if you're able to get, get into their lives and into what's going on in terms of the guilt that's on their conscience, all of a sudden, those particular chemicals are unnecessary. 
It's amazing. Amazing. Well over 60% of the people that come for, to me for depression or serious depression, the real issue is guilt. The real issue is guilt. Nobody's ever helped them to deal with their past guilt. They don't have any idea of how do, you, how do you deal with that? How do you work on this from a biblical perspective? And so they've carried this for such a long time, and they know it's wrong. They don't know what to do with it. How do I deal with it? And the longer they carry it, the more depressed they become as time goes on. And so what's the alternative? Well, because it makes me feel better, I'm going to take some chemicals. But that does that deal with the problem? No, that's like giving an anesthetic to somebody sitting on a tack. All right, they'll feel better for a short amount of time. But guess what? As soon as the anesthetic and the drugs wear off, ouch, it comes back. So I got to take more. Then I go on this carousel of selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. I've got to go on this carousel of different jumping from different drug to drug to drug in order to suppress that guilt. I'm not saying everybody with depression, that's their problem. I'm not saying that. But a good 60% of the people that I've worked with, there's the problem. They cover it with chemicals. Or blame shifting. That's such a big thing. They blame shift. I'm not responsible for the way that I am. Look, it's that husband you gave me. It's the wife you gave me. My wife and I today are celebrating our 46th wedding anniversary. (laughs) So all of my mistakes, I cannot blame on her. They're personally mine, all right? So blame shifting, and again, Ezekiel 18 provides adequate evidence to say that God hates those who make those kind of claims. I'm not responsible for what I've done. It's the parents you've given me, or it's the children you've given me, or whatever the case may be. Each generation, God says, is responsible for the sin. The soul who whose sins will die. He repeatedly says that in Ezekiel. The soul whose sins will die. Oh, what about this? We've talked about this a little bit. What they do is try to build a person's self-esteem, boost your self-esteem. And we saw this from 2 Timothy chapter 3. This is the very thing that will make the last days so terrible. Men will be lovers of self. And they do this to cover over guilt, to cover over sin, to cover over their irresponsibility, to mask the horrible feelings that they have. Self-esteem. I was talking about this in the seminary a couple of years ago, one of the classes that we had, and I had a seminary student raise his hand. He says, Dr. Street, he says, uh, I teach in the L.A. school district as a substitute teacher. He said, this past week, I was able to substitute in a health class on a a junior high level, middle school level. And uh, no, no, it it was an elementary school level. It was elementary, he said. 
And so in this health class, they give them a book, this teacher's book, and tells them the assignments that you need to give to the kids on that particular day. And so in class, he was supposed to give them some assignments. And the first assignment was this, list five ways that you are awesome. All right, five ways that you are awesome. And immediately, one of the boys in the back raises it. And he says, yes. He says, does it only have to be five? (laughs) Wow, our kids have caught this really well. Five ways you're off. And then the second assignment was this. Corporate sponsors work very hard to sell a product. List five ways that you would sell yourself. Okay? And what are they doing? They're trying to build these students' self-esteem. That's what they're doing. And then they wonder, and they are almost crazy trying to figure out why there are so many school shootings or fights. Why? Well, you've spent years building your self-esteem. Anybody that offends me, I'm going to go after you. That's against my self-esteem. Whereas my kids, when they were growing up, we used to say, that's against my selfish steam. <laughs> All right? And then, of course, we live in a society that's consumed with self-gratification, right? That's one of the efforts in order to eliminate guilt, self-gratification. Whatever form it comes in, whatever pleasure it comes in, uh, whatever pleasure it brings us. And if you read and study carefully the book of Ecclesiastes and the way that Solomon talks about self-gratification, he says in the final analysis, all of this is fleeting, so chasing after the wind. It's a vapor that's there for a short amount of time. Hebrew word is haval, havalim, vanity, vanity, all is vanity, haval, havalim, haval, havalim, smoke, smoke, or I like to say sometimes in Ecclesiastes, soap bubbles, soap bubbles, everything is soap bubbles in this world. Chasing treasures and pleasures in this world is soap bubbles. They're there for a short amount of time. You say, oh, look, isn't this wonderful? It's gone, it's gone forever. Gone forever. We're a part of the soap bubbleness of this world. We're only here for a short amount of time. We're gone. Forever. So there's that self-gratification that consumes people. Um, I used to travel a lot, and you walk through the airports today, and you see people with earbuds in. Walking down the airport. (laughs) All right. It's almost as if if you could just shut off whatever music they're listening to for 10 seconds, their head would explode. They would ever had an opportunity to have a serious thought. They just consume themselves with pleasure. They consume themselves with pleasure. Ecclesiastes 7 talks about that. Talks about music. Consuming yourself in music is not going to solve anything. Makes you feel better for a temporary amount of time. You may be able to assuage the guilt for a short amount of time. So, okay, you say, all right, I understand what's going on in our society. What does the Bible say about this? What does the Bible say about this? So this is where we need to get to what does Scripture say. 
First and foremost, I want you to see this, that a biblical definition of guilt is it is a legal, let me say that again, a legal liability or culpability to punishment. Now, you'll notice in that definition, what I've done here is summed up a lot of theology in one little short statement. The biblical view of guilt has nothing to do with feelings. It has to do with objective criteria. And that is, according to Scripture, what does the Bible say about those attitudes those words, those deeds that you have done, whether you feel that they're bad or not. Let me give you an illustration right out of the Apostle Paul's life. Take your Bible and let's go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. Paul is talking about his own conscience here. 1 Corinthians 4, 4, where he says, for I am conscious of nothing against myself. In other words, he evaluated himself and he doesn't see anywhere where he's done anything wrong. But notice what he says after that. Yet, I am not by this acquitted, but the one who examines me is the Lord. Now look at that. How many of us have that kind of an attitude? All right. In other words, he was conscious of nothing that he had done, but he says, that doesn't let me off the hook. Even though I don't feel guilty, even though I can't think of anything by which I believe that I'm guilty, that doesn't let me off the hook. It's the Lord who examines me. How I feel, how I think in my conscience is not as important as what God says in his evaluation of me. That's the important thing. That's what I'm after. What does God say about my attitudes, words, actions? What does he say? So this is... Biblically, it's a legal liability or culpability to punishment. Whether you feel guilty or not, you're still be held accountable by God. Now, this brings us to the fact of guilt versus the feeling of guilt. The term guilt properly denotes the fact of liability and not the feeling that often accompanies it. Negative feelings are a result of guilt. Sometimes we may have negative feelings unless we've seared our conscience or blunted it with chemicals. So it's possible for us to be guilty and not really truly feel guilty, right? It's like going through a school zone 30 miles an hour. And the police pull you over, come to the door of your vehicle and say, license and registration, please. Well, officer, what's wrong? Well, did you see the speed limit back there? This is a school zone. Yes. 
Well, you were traveling 30 miles an hour through the school zone. Yes, you say. But I had been traveling 65 miles an hour. I slowed down. All right, don't I get credit for slowing down to 30 miles an hour? I feel good about the fact that I slowed down. I feel great about that. I feel wonderful about that, right? I saw the school zone. No, no, no. It doesn't say 30 miles an hour. It says 20 miles an hour. Well, you say, that may be your interpretation of the law. You're going to get a ticket. I guarantee you. All right? Because it wasn't 20 miles an hour. How you felt about it is meaningless. All right? You broke the law. You're guilty. You're culpable. Whether you feel bad about it or not is meaningless. How many times have I said across the table, way too many, from a guy who says to me, I know I'm having this affair on my wife, but you don't understand how she's treated me. She's a horrible person. She says nasty, horrible things about me. And I'll tell you, this other woman loves me. She cares for me. She says wonderful things to me. She, she doesn't say any of these caustic, terrible things to me. I, you know, so, I, I, you know, God understands this. No, don't give me that. You said, I do, 15 years ago. And now you're backing out on it. You need to go back in there and live with your wife and repent of this sin, how you feel about it, and whether or not it gives you pleasure or not is meaningless. It's meaningless. It's the fact of it. And this even extends down to something very specific. Grab your Bible and go over to Romans 14. Romans chapter 14, and we're interested in verse 23. You probably know where I'm going here, but I think it's important to point out. Here, the Apostle Paul is dealing with the issue of eating meat that has been offered to idols or what sometimes we refer to as Christian liberty issues and about the weaknesses of other people in terms of the Christian liberty issues. But in verse 23, he says, but he who doubts is condemned if he eats. His eating is not from faith and whatever is not from faith is sin. So Paul gives us a little example of this. Anything that is against the word of God that you do that's wrong, you're guilty of. But he extends it to anything that you think is against the word of God and you do it, you're guilty of too. Anything that you think the word of God teaches, even though it may not teach it, but you do it anyhow. Because why? That's, God says, If you do it against your conscience and you think that's what the word of God says, even though the word of God may not say that, and you do it anyhow, you do it against your conscience, you're searing your conscience. This is how careful we have to be with our own conscience. 
And I'm going to talk about that next week. I'm going to talk about the conscience, the Christian conscience, and why this is so vitally connected to the issue of guilt. Vitally connected. How we treat our conscience. How we should respond to these things in terms of conscience. So, you've broken the law if what you do then is not done in faith. If you're a person that feels a lot better because you slowed down from 65 miles an hour, but you're still guilty of breaking the law, even though you feel like it or not, you're still guilty. And then there's the idea of false guilt, the idea of false guilt. This, again, society at large has so inundated us and baptized us into their thinking. Nowhere in the Bible does that ever say that there's such a thing as false guilt. It doesn't exist in the Bible. Never has, never will. That's a Freudian concept. It's modern psychotherapy talking to you. That is not Scripture talking to you. you. Say, how can you say that? Because there are some things that I've done that I just really feel guilty about, and I know the Bible doesn't teach anything about it. But, well, you have sinned because you've gone against your own conscience about it, but that's not what you really feel guilty about. False guilt is not a good term to use. Most often when a people, you, people use that term, what they're really describing here is regret and remorse. That's what they're describing. They're describing regret and remorse, not false guilt. Because this is very vitally important. In your thinking, you have to reserve guilt for factual issues. You have to reserve guilt for factual issues. So how do we deal with guilt? That's the question. How do we deal with guilt? Well, oftentimes, in a lot of counseling, especially in Christian psychotherapy, if somebody says, comes in and says, you know, I just feel horrible, I feel guilty, first thing the therapist is going to say to that particular person is, oh, you shouldn't feel that way. Really? What do they end up doing? They end up minimizing the fact of guilt. You know what? Maybe there's a good reason they feel bad. So you'll never catch me doing that in counseling. Somebody comes in and says, I just feel horrible. I just feel so guilty. My immediate response is, well, then tell me why you feel that way. Tell me why you fear that way. It's different. Don't minimize the fact of guilt. What you have to do is maximize God's justice. If you're guilty, then you ought to feel guilty. Then repent of it. But don't soft-pedal your guilt. Don't soft-pedal your guilt. That's what people will do. Guilt is universal because sin is universal. You understand that, right? Guilt is universal because sin is universal. Everyone will experience guilt. Now, we're talking about culpability, the punishment, we're talking about the fact of guilt. That's, that's a universal thing. <laughs> guilt 
is universal because sin is universal. Guilt then is serious because God is a holy judge. And he will judge. There are plenty of examples of that in Scripture where God has judged people for things that from our particular perspective in our culture, do you say, why did God do that? You're as a good example in the Old Testament who was carrying the Ark of the Covenant while marching alongside the ox cart and by the way, that was against the law. They were not supposed to transport the Ark of the Covenant on an ox cart. They were supposed to hand carry it. And the Ark of the Covenant, Uzzah starts to fall off of the, of the cart because they'd hit a bump in the road. And Uzzah reaches out immediately and puts his hand on the Ark of the Covenant and God strikes him dead right there. From our culture, we look at that and we say, my word, he was trying to do something good. In fact, we would say his intentions were all good. He did not want to see the Ark of the Covenant hit the ground, get dirty, break apart. I mean, isn't that good? Doesn't God judge good intentions? But the problem is this, that Uzzah believed that his hand was cleaner than the dirt the Ark of the Covenant would land on. And that's not the case. God judged him because he was a holy judge because of his sinfulness. A sinful man should not touch that which is holy. And boom, his life was taken. He believed that somehow his sinful hand was better than the dirt on the ground. No, it's not. So in a similar way, our God is a very holy judge. He will judge those who are guilty. He will, and guilt will remain, even if it's explained away or if its effects are somehow lessened. And where guilt remains, punishment is inevitable. That can't be stopped. It will remain there. Um, so we must never, ever minimize the fact of guilt. Never minimize it. Um, so we must never minimize the feeling of guilt either. When somebody says that they feel guilty, there's probably a good reason why they feel guilty. Unless their conscience is not biblically informed. There's a good reason. So don't minimize the feeling of guilt. Now, listen, I want you to know that I love Generation Z. I do. I love, you know why I love them? Because they hate hypocrites. 
They hate hypocrites. They hate people that are two-faced. They hate people who are acting one way and really living another way. I love that about Generation Z, right? But the problem with Generation Z is that they have equated feelings and how they feel with reality and truth. That's the problem. So I'll often get a response like this when I'm talking about this very fact fact from Generation Z. They'll say to me, but if um, I feel guilty, I'm, um, well, how would they say it? If I feel like I'm guilty and I'm really not guilty, then um, then I need to repent of that too. No, you're repenting of something that's false because you're not guilty according to God's word. You're not. Or sometimes they'll say, and this is one of the reasons why they have so many difficulties with the uh, whole trans community is the fact that if I am a girl and I feel like a guy, then I must be a guy. If I'm a guy and I feel like a girl, I must be a girl kind of thing. And it all is based upon how they feel. Well, if I made my judgments just upon my feelings, if that were true, then a lot of terrible things would happen to me. Sometimes if I have to get up at three or four o'clock in the morning and go to the airport and take that trek down the 405, which is dangerous in and of itself, I guarantee you that when my alarm goes off, I don't feel like getting out of bed. Not a, there's not a fiber in my body that feels like getting out of bed. But you know what? I go ahead and do it. So am I a hypocrite if I do that and I act against my feeling? Am I being a hypocrite? No, I'm not being a hypocrite. I'm doing what is right and truthful. That's what I must do. All right? Sometimes you have to go against your feelings. But then we must never minimize those feelings either, right? There probably is a good reason for that. Furthermore, we must never underestimate the effects of guilt. Never underestimate the effects of guilt. And we can see this if you take your Bible just for a moment and let's go over to Psalm 32. In our Joint Heirs Fellowship Group, we have been going through the Psalms, both Pastor Tom Patton and myself and some of our other speakers have been going through the Psalms. And this has been a really rich study. But if you take a look at Psalm 32, where David says, and he's dealing with his guilt. He says, how blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man whose iniquity Yahweh will not take into account and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent about my sin, my bones wasted away through my groanings, groanings all day long for night and day your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the 
heat of summer. So in verses three and four, you can see the effects of guilt. It has physiological effects upon people. My bones wasted away. My health was not good. I groaned all day long. Night and day, your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat or with the heat of summer. And then in verse 5, it says, I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I did not cover up. I said, I will confess my transgression to Yahweh and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Now, if you take a look there in verse 5 where he says, I did not cover up my sin. I I confessed it. I confessed my guilt to you. And you look at verse 1, whose sin is covered. You begin to get the idea what sin man uncovers before God are the very sins that God covers. That's where forgiveness comes from, and that happens after repentance. What I uncover before God, God covers with his forgiveness. What I uncover before God, God covers with his forgiveness. That becomes the true answer to guilt. That's where you can turn around so that no longer are you held accountable before God. If guilt indeed is a legal liability or culpability to punishment, this is the way that you deal with this so that your conscience is wiped clean and now you can move forward as a forgiven person. And you can see in verse 1 also the fact that covering a sin When God covers a sin, that doesn't mean he looks the other way. That doesn't mean he ignores it. That doesn't mean he sweeps it under the rug because we have a tendency to think, oh, you know, I'm just a loving person. I cover the other person's um, sin, you know, in love. No, no, no. It means forgiveness because in verse 1 there, forgiveness is the act of covering of sin. That's in Hebrew poetic parallelism. Forgiveness is is covering a sin. That's what should happen. So when we cover a sin, we're extending forgiveness to the other person. And in in that forgiveness, then their sins are covered and their sins are no longer held against their account. That's what needs to happen. Well, next Sunday, we're going to talk about How does the conscience play into this? What is the biblical view of conscience? I think it may surprise you what the biblical view of conscience is. So hopefully we'll have a handout that will give you pages four and five of the outline. So thank you for coming today. Let's bow for prayer and we'll let you go, all right? Gracious Lord, we are grateful for the instruction of the word of God. It certainly gives us clarity in the midst of a culture of chaos, it gives us a way to think about our lives and ourselves, and it frees us from the guilt and the oppression of guilt properly through repentance, through seeking God's forgiveness in our lives, and receiving his forgiveness and marching forward with a clear conscience so that we can serve you in grace and truth. I pray, Father, you'll continue to build in us a godly conscience.
and a godly view of guilt. This we pray in Christ's name, amen.